0: Watch your step. The light by the old stackpipe went out. Plus we're still having issues with leaks. Yes, descending these creaky stairs is more slippery than ever. And I don't need to warn you about the locals down there. A basement full of zoo animals, if you ask me. But they love their Texas longhorns. And to get the truth... This is where they have to come. That's why you're here, isn't it? For the truth. We welcome you back to The Deep Dig. Ladies and gentlemen, Orange Bloods, welcome back to episode 19 of the Deep Dig podcast here on OrangeBloods.com. My name is Alex Dunlap, uh, and if you didn't notice that creepy guy that brought you down here to the basement, uh, this is a game week. We have been down in the basement all week long, breaking down the spring game, which is always a maniacal nightmare to get done under my Tuesday-Thursday deadlines for the defense and offensive portion of the Columns at orangebloods.com because it's basically like breaking down two whole games you know (laughs) this is i mean if you got to break down the offense and the defense on every single possession that's not the case in season where of course i'm just breaking down what it is that the texas longhorns are doing so uh if if you're on orangebloods.com and you have a uh premium membership there you've read inside the 40 acres this week uh The deep dig part one for the defense, I have just now, literally just now, posted on orangebloods.com a portion two for the offense. That's what's fresh on my mind. There's no way we're going to be able to get through, you know, 40 to 45 plus hours of work and data for both the offense and the defense this week and still get to the Orange Bloods community question and answer portion of the podcast, which is the most important part of the podcast. So with the offense most fresh on my mind, we'll get to that this week. We will hop back to the defense Um, next week. Uh, Quick reminder, I try and get one podcast out a week, usually on Tuesdays, a week like this. I had to push it back just due to other things, uh, namely having to do all the maniacal work with charting every single play and every snap from the Texas spring game on both sides of the football for uh, all players involved. But if if you like the podcast, please give it a five-star rating in itunes give it a good review uh, i see that more and more people are starting to listen that is awesome but uh, the one thing that advertisers keep pointing to is i don't have enough good reviews i don't have enough good star ratings they want to see hundreds of these things if you get a minute please give it a good rating and or review hopefully both okay so let's start out with the offensive line connor williams he got the star treatment he got the Puna ford pj lock star treatment there were three guys in the texas spring game that didn't have to play the second half they were PJ Puna Ford, two guys on defense who we'll get to next week, and Connor Williams, Uh, so only 35 snaps. He did allow one sack, one very athletic-looking sack, to Jeffrey McCulloch, that really I mean he he got Jeffrey McCulloch to basically okay depth he 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 skedaddled him a good way back past the quarterback Shane Bouchel held on the ball a little bit longer than you could tell Connor expected, or maybe a little bit longer than uh, Bouchelle himself uh, thought that he would need to to wait for uh, any sort of window to come open and um Jeffrey McCulloch was able to turn the corner, come back upfield, and get to him just in time. So other than that, he picked up right where he left off. Connor Williams did. He'll be leaving early after the 2017 season. He graded out of this game with an 81.86. With That on the deep dig scale is basically saying that this guy's probably going to go, if he has games like that through the entire football season, he's probably going to go in the fifth to the seventh round. Uh, of the NFL uh, of the NFL draft in a vacuum knowing nothing else um Without that sack, he probably would have been closer to an eighty three, which is more of a mid round pick. I think that falls in line right with where about Connor Williams is right now. I think he's gonna move his way up through the course of the season to where he's starting to get these eighty fours, eighty fives, eighty sixes. When you get to that level and you do it consistently, you start getting grades like the Larry Warfords, you start getting grades like the Joel Bitonios, you start getting grades like the Cam Irvings, other guys like this, uh, that the graded so highly on this scale out of college, you're gonna get drafted early in the NFL draft. Uh, all all signs are pointed towards Connor Williams being a first-round pick next season if this sort of progression does continue. Uh, next, we move to Patrick Vahe. He played all the snaps. He played 63 snaps. He allowed one sack and one quarterback hit. And we got to remember, guys, we're talking about a first-team offensive line that's playing against a second-team defensive line. So let's keep in mind that that usually is, at the nose, Jordan Elliott, at one of the defensive ends – Generally a Gerald Wilbon, sometimes it was a DeAndre Christmas. And DeAndre Christmas doesn't look explosive because he needs a hernia surgery. Okay. And then Charles O'Minahou. Sometimes an Andrew Fitzgerald squeaking in there. Sometimes for a Jordan Elliott, you'd have a Chris Daniel squeaking in there, but not very often. It seems like Jordan Elliott's the farthest along of those defenders, and he actually gave these guys a little bit of a uh, little bit of trouble. If, if if you're talking about the you know the ones versus the twos, because Patrick Vaje on 63 snaps allowed a sack, he allowed a quarterback hit. He created two knockdowns, and he created one pin. He came out with a final grade on the deep dig of a 75.63, which is just above the 75-point baseline. And if everybody on the deep, if everybody on the offensive line scored a 75 on the deep dig scale every single week, you'd have a pretty good college offensive line. You'd have an average college offensive line, one that a good coach, a good coordinator could game plan around, and, and one that wasn't going to get you in trouble, that wasn't going to be a liability uh, to what it was that you were doing. I think that with Valia, though, he just continues to underperform. Expectations he, by only playing at this level—that's slightly above average. I guess, in fairness, we should say that when you look at the offensive line grade log that I kept, uh, that I keep for every game, but the one that I kept for this game, that you know, when Connor Williams goes out and they put JP Orquidez there at the left tackle, and oh, we're going to get to that, but that was an absolute nightmare. This this kid can't play, not yet. He can't play, and, and so it, you, you have you have Patrick Vahes. Basically, his biggest bugaboo as a player was something that was completely, um, you know, proliferated or, or completely like multi, like it put a multiplier on it to have a J.P. Orquides directly to his left, and that's the fact that, that Vae never been any good at picking up stunts. And what this Texas defensive line does, we'll talk about it in the defensive portion, but these guys are slanting, these guys are stunning, these guys are one-gapping just as much as they are two-gapping along that defensive line. There's lots of tricky stunts, lots of blitzes, lots of things happening that um, get, the, get the outside linebackers, and sometimes that will, inside linebacker, really involved uh, you know, getting them involved to try and run through these big, wide-open gaps, and Vahe was just taken advantage of in those ways. And he, he, it's it's impossible to think that Patrick Vahe was going to be able to uh, learn how to, over the course of an offseason with an, a whole new install coming in and a whole new coach coming in, it, that he's going to learn how to feel natural in picking up these stunts and these twists. It's been w- literally one of his biggest issues, dating back to the first time I could ever ask Coach Strong or Coach Wickline about what he needs to work on. It's something that has continued, as I've studied, every single snap he's taken as a Texas Longhorn be it in a spring football game or in a uh, you know in season uh, in season occasion. So when you have a JP or is next to him, a kid who's not ready to play at all, who can't even pick the stunts up like it's just gonna be a nightmare. I think the fact that, or I think the fact that Patrick Vahe the I think the fact that Patrick Vaje was playing at an above average level at least, despite the fact he didn't have Connor Williams next to him and he had to basically play babysitter to your for half of the game Uh, i think that you know that's something that you can come away from this saying well it's clearly not optimal you'd like to him to get you know a score near an 82 like connor williams got but you know it is what it is that's where we are with patrick Uh, at the center position jake mcmillan 63 snaps and no disruption allowed on the game Final deep dig score, 76.27. I think he would have scored a lot higher if he would have been at the guard position because he's better at guard than he is at center. Of course, you know that Jake McMillan is only at guard right now because – or only at center right now because he has versatility to move inside the center. And starting center, Zach Shackelford, is hurt. Once Zach Shackelford comes back, Jake McMillan will be moved back out to the right guard where I think he's more valuable as a player. Um it's because he's a technical player. He he makes a lot of hay getting his double teams on the four technique or the nose shade and then getting up to the linebacker much, much, much more so than he does getting good movement in a solo base assignment or just in an assignment where he's getting guard help uh, there on like the nose shade or the nose. You know, he doesn't get good movement on those guys uh, right off the bat. He's not a pure power guy. He, he's he's a Good power guy mixed with a good feet guy mixed with a technical guy. And that's why he's much, much better at guard. Why I thought he'd be better at left guard than he would be at right guard in one of my uh, the only real issues that I had with the with the, uh, the roster construction as laid out initially by Derek Wareham to start this spring was that you know my minor quib was like I would have liked to have seen Patrick Vahé at right guard and Jake McMillan at left guard just given what they both bring as far as uh, f- physical attributes to the way I see them translating schematically. Of course, uh, who am I to say what <laughs> what uh, he wants to do schematically within his uh, within his system uh, there at the right guard filling in for. Jake McMillan, who moved inside the centers, we talked about Elijah Rodriguez, sixty-three snaps. He had one run stuff and one QB pressure allowed. He created one pin block. His deep dig grade was a seventy-seven, a seventy-seven point zero six. So that was the second biggest surprise along the entire offensive line. We'll get to the biggest in here in one minute. And by the biggest, I mean the tallest and just the you know the big nastiest. Um, but yeah, o- Elijah Rodriguez, like he showed in this scrimmage, like. It, immense improvement from the absolute abomination that he put on tape during the same game last season the same scrimmage last season so should injury occur and listen to this he puna ford made absolute mincemeat of 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 elijah rodriguez and terrell terrell cuny last spring game do you do you remember the puna ford monster mincemeat mince meat out of these idiots. And this year this is a big improvement uh, to a, a, a 77.06. Um like I was saying, if Shaq gets injured again in the season, if McMillan gets injured in the season or if Vaje gets injured in the season I think Elijah Rodriguez is the guy who stands to benefit the most because he's, he's going to be the sixth man in for those interior guard positions and he's showing right now that fans should probably have some cautious optimism uh, regarding him should he have to step into one of those spots it's not like the tackle spot where this thing is going to be an absolute damn nightmare if anybody gets oh if Connor gets hurt. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that here in one second. Uh, rounding out the first team, right tackle Tristan Nicholson. He played 63 snaps. He allowed one tackle for a loss, and he committed one false start penalty. He created one pin block in his deep-dig grade, the second-highest of anybody, unbelievably, 77.22. The deep-dig score, if everybody blocked like Tristan Nicholson blocked in the spring game, Texas would be playing at a dominant All-Big 12 level, and they would be running the football down opponents' throats at will. So by far the biggest surprise of the whole 40-plus hours of film work required for... Uh, the, this week's edition of the written columns of the deep dig, it was Nicholson. He never looked like a dominating force during the scrimmage. I'll say that. But certainly uh, didn't ever appear to be as lumbering or just oversized and off-kilter and just uh, the off-balance Just nightmare that fans became used to seeing last year in 2016. And we don't know if it's a mirage, right? I mean, you're going against the twos, I get it. But these twos aren't, aren't bad. Charles O'Menohu was a starter in the Big 12 last season. So, Nicholson might finally be coming around. I mean, he allowed disruption where he created a penalty last season once every 12.5 snaps. I mean, and and it, you're looking at this, it's only 63 snaps. But, I mean, hey, look, well, his snaps uh, count sample from last season was only 200 snaps total. So, this, I mean... You're looking at something that's between a, you know, between a third and a fourth of his overall sample from last season that we're getting that 12.5 number on. And his number for this game is way up at 31.5 in this in- in- instance. And none of those came via a disruption to the quarterback, via pressures. And that was his previous Achilles heel. Okay, so we get to the second offensive line. And they were going up against the ones. We have to remember that. But Gene DeLance, he is not ready. He is not ready, and boy, 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 is Texas in trouble if they have to start that guy at left tackle. He had 41 snaps. He played 35 with the second team. He played just six with the first team. Uh, He allowed six quarterback pressures and one sack during that time. Absolutely miserable. His deep dig score was a 69.4, one of the lowest in the going on, what, going into our fifth year now, uh, charting every snap by every Texas offensive lineman. On every play of the season in the spring game, and so he's not ready. Uh, since his redshirt was already burnt, uh, since his redshirt was uh, burned in his freshman season, I mean, I wonder if he could just take a redshirt this year and just like he's he's not ready. His feet need to get better. If Connor Williams can't stay healthy all season, why do you even need a Gene Delance anyway? Um, I'd say that if there is an issue where Connor Williams does get hurt, well, I, I say one. As we say on Orange Bowl, it's pepper your Angus. Prepare your anus is the, is, is, is the other way of saying it. And then two, look for Tristan Nicholson to handle the right tackle and for Brandon Hughes to jump over to the left tackle. Should Hodges finally get his damn grades in order? Right. Because here's the thing. None of the young – and it's not like even Brandon Hodges is even that great. He's basically an average Big 12 offensive tackle, maybe a guy who's just really teetering on the edge of acceptability, but like, you'll take that compared to some of these guys, as as, as we'll get to. None of these young uh, offensive tackle options are even near ready for the prime time yet. Some are more ready than others. Um, uh, left tackle J.P. Urquidez, he played 33 snaps, and 22 of them were with the first team, 11 were with the second team, so that says something. This coaching staff thinks that J.P. Urquidez is a little bit further along than Gene DeLance, and the deep big says, based on his grade, over 33 snaps, that he played a little bit better than Gene DeLance. But may the Lord be with the souls of anybody rooting for the Texas Longhorns should J.P. Urquidez have to play meaningful snaps for the Longhorns in 2017. We saw what that looked like in the spring game versus Texas' second team. It was a disaster. Five pressures, one sack, one quarterback hit one-run stuff, and just a whole lot of looking around like, what in the hell am I doing? The good news? Well, we, I mean, the D dig found that he's, he's improved in some ways. His feet look a little bit better. He's not appearing as clumsy or as lumbering. And when you get, when you get to walk around and just stand around J.P. Yorquides, one thing you realize about him is like he's a big, good-looking kid. You know, and I always just said if he can get the feet better, if he can quit quit getting overexposed, uh, you know, overextended, you know, I I think that I think I mean, physically, he looks like he should have the tools. His proportions are good. He's got big hands, nice, nice long arms. You know, he's 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 not a he's not a fat kid. So, I, I mean, he just as of now, he just he still he gets out of position too much. He's a complete mark for opposing defensive coordinators. They're going to allow edge rushers to convert outside speed to power across his chest plate over and over and over. You know, we saw it when he was next to Alex Anderson with the first group or with the second group. We saw it when he was next to uh, Patrick Vahe with the first group. Speaking of Alex Anderson, he had 46 snaps in the game at the left guard position. He allowed one quarterback sack, he allowed one quarterback hit. He committed one illegal downfield, uh, one illegal man downfield penalty. And his deep-degrade was a 73.7. So right there on the edge of acceptability, only slightly unacceptable game out of Alex Anderson. Uh, center Terrell Cuny, 46 snaps. He allowed one sack and two quarterback hits. His deep-degrade right there with an Alex Anderson, about a 73.5. Um... This is the same zero-sum game kind of chicken-egg scenario. Like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which one's better? Like, is the, is the offen- second offensive line this bad? Or is Puna Ford just always going to be this dominant? You know, uh, I mean, it's kind of what we talked about with the defense in, in portion, one of the deep-dig column, like we'll talk about next week. Which one is it? Is Puna going to be an absolute nightmare this year? Or is D- Terrell CUNY and Alex Anderson awful, you know? The good, I guess, I don't know, is even good news that, I mean, I mean, CUNY, it, like I said earlier, CUNY and Elijah Rodriguez both got absolutely murdered in this game last year. I mean, a 73.52 out of CUNY this season, it, at least it's not getting murdered, right? And the truth is these two guys, they perform best of any second-team offensive lineman. They are the strength of the second unit, even as players who performed to a level that's really below the level of true acceptability at the division 1 level as as defined by the deep dig. So we're finding out more and more that a player like the currently suspended or off I don't know it's focusing on grades whatever he is in the in, in the doghouse Brandon Hodges since he has that tackle guard versatility along with even the slightest bit of seasoning as a college player that's going to be incredibly important to this group. You know, if for no other reason than just to be another line of defense against having to insert one of any of these young guys into real bullets flying, real live action anytime next year. Uh, up next on, on at the right guard position, at least he was better than in any in, any of these tackles, and that was number seventy three, Patrick Hudson. He played forty six snaps. He played all the right guard snaps. He allowed two quarterback pressures and once got one sack. Poor Sam Ellinger, as we'll get to. Jeez, my God, uh, the deep did great on him seventy two point six one. Um, Patrick Hudson, he may be one of the strongest players on the team. He does not exhibit that at all times in a game setting, and we now know that after getting to see him in a game setting. Looking back, this could be a first, like I said, zero-sum game. Chicken egg. Is this a stamp of approval for Puna Ford and to Chris Nelson? Or is this something where Patrick Hudson does not show his immense strength that he has in the weight room functionally on, on, on the football field. Even when engaged with Puna Ford on like zone concepts, and this team runs a ton of zone, even when he's hip-to-hip with Terrell Cooney, working in tandem on Puna Ford, Hutt, Patrick Hudson, he can bench 500 pounds, he can, de- he can deadlift the city of goddamn Waco, he can't get regular good movement on Puna Ford at a 90-degree angle upfield field in a zone concept. Number 78, right tackle Denzel Okafor. Played all 46 snaps at the second right tackle. He allowed two quarterback pressures, one quarterback hit, and one sack. Poor Sam. Deep did great, 72.39. And of all realistic options, at least as far as the underclassmen options go at the tackle, it's Denzel Okafor. And probably as we expected, he's probably the best option to have to step up to an immediate tackle role if needed. However, look, the way we see it, if he's forced to do so, He's only at this time about a Cameron Hughes level, maybe Cameron Hughes 2014-ish level player, possibly a Cameron Hughes plus to start, maybe even the whole time as a freshman. So the good news, though, Okafor, better feet, better size, better balance, certainly has better power than a a, uh, Cameron Hughes to start. So his future is uh, much brighter. We didn't chart the threes versus threes. For any of the grading purposes, they didn't even keep score for that part of the game with Herman's Kakamimi scoring system for the spring game. So we figure if the team's not even keeping score, we are not going to chart it at the deep dig. But the third-team offensive line was uh, of scholarship players. These guys played nine snaps with the third-team uh, left tackle. It was J.P. Urquidez, so he's the only guy to play with the first, second, and third-team during, <laughs> during the game. Um, Tope Amadi played nine snaps. Uh, With the third team, right guard Garrett Thomas seems absolutely buried. Played nine snaps at guard, and his body looks more like a tackle to me. And then Buck Major, absolutely buried at the right tackle. Played nine snaps, only getting work with the threes. Okay, to the skill positions now. Quarterback, uh, number seven, Shane Buschel. I played 63 snaps. Number 11, Sam Ellinger. Played 46 snaps. And look, I don't have to tell you guys. Shane Bouchel showed the world that he's the better option at quarterback than a true freshman and Sam Ellinger for the time being, or at least during the scrimmage. I think it's hard to argue otherwise. Shane Bouchel led two very long scoring drives. You know, I think he appeared more poised. I think he threw more catchable footballs than Ellinger. I think that one thing I just don't want to be lost in all this, though, one thing that needs to be lost in the history books is that Ellinger was absolutely swindled. He got, he got served to put the earmuffs over the kids. An absolute shit sandwich by the, by the second offensive line. I mean, it, I even said in the column that it, that, it, that, it, that shit sandwich had a side of corny-eyed sewer bass. Because the wide receivers, just listen. It, it, it gets me even stammered up and stuttering to even think about it. On, on Ellinger's 21 incompletions, he was 10 for 31 on the day, right? Eight came via drops. The worst coming from a beautiful like TD. It was a dime. It was a bomb to Dorian Leonard. There were an additional five throwaways with Ellinger trying to completely avoid murdered by sack thanks to the pitiful second offensive line that we just broke down. So take away those plays, Ellinger's 10 for 18 for 148 and a touchdown. That's a much more amenable stat line to look back at, especially when we're considering we're talking about a person who is, I mean, he's supposed to be going to prom here in the next month he's supposed to he was supposed to be eating uh or you know like eating in the high school cafeteria he was eating in the high school cafeteria just four months ago okay at the running back Tony O'Carter one of the real highlights of the spring game uh, he played in 55 snaps and we did not chart any of the other guys who played in the game because I mean Chris Warren and Kirk Johnson of course they aren't healthy. Who knows when either of those guys is ever going to stay healthy. It's getting to be time that fans should probably start thinking about life without either of them because neither have shown that they can stay healthy for any you know, long duration of time. They're probably guys you can each expect to see each in three to four games next season and hope that the rest of these guys can – um, can, can get in and supply some kind of effort and production in the run game whenever they are unavailable due to injuries. Uh, those guys, of course, being Kyle Porter and Tristan Houston, who were themselves also injured from this game. So Tony O'Carter was the only game in town, and, and he you was know, the lonely only among scholarship options at the position. And, and, you know, this is 2017's best in-state high school runner. And he was impressive in his first true game-like debut for the, for the Texas fans. Look, he gained 60 yards on the ground, so that was on 10 carries, so he averaged six yards per carry. Uh, By our charting, 27 of them came after contact. So he's showing the elusiveness that he exhibited on high school film. I mean, it's going to translate in some way to the college level. So how soon? I mean, you don't know. That's anybody's guess. Clearly, later down the road would be better because that means other guys stayed healthy. But if if you look at the charting that we did, and you can find all this again at orangebloods.com, in the column that, that went up on Thursday, that 75% of Texas' run concept mix was 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 inside zone, or at least of an inside zone variety. Inside zone concepts are like, you know, inside zone, zone read, quarterback bash, zone slice, you know. those, those They ran those 75% of the time. The other 25% of the time were plays that were, you know, a mix of four different concepts. The four dif- different other concepts, just for those wondering, like, The one other concept would be like the power man gap kind of concepts. The other uh, one other outside zone sort of sweep concepts. We saw a little bit of draw uh, concept, and then the final one we saw a little bit of a counter slash sort of inverted veer power read concept a few times, but 75% of the time it's going to be inside zone. And, and what that shows with Tony Carter also is the, the yards after contact and inside zone. It shows that shed ability through the hips that we care so much about, you know, getting through that slog of the offensive line while you're waiting in a, in a zone game, for zone lanes to identify themselves, I, I think it. I think it shows a lot that of the first unit, seventy-five percent of runs uh, during that scrimmage were of the inside zone variety, and that in those kinds of runs, Tony Carter was able to get virtually half of his yards after contact. I think it's a. I think it's a big deal, and since something that should certainly raise your eyebrows about the kind of runner he is, he's an elusive runner. Okay, so finally, let's get to the wide receivers. We're not going to talk about tight ends because I don't even feel like the position exists at Texas anymore. I think it's cockamamie nonsense that uh, Tom Herman keeps saying it's one of the most important positions on his team. It's simply not true. It has never been true at any single stop from a production standpoint, uh, except for maybe at Rice. Okay, so Colin Johnson, of course, had the big game. He had 55 snaps. He played fifty three with the first team and two with the second team. He had nine targets. His average depth of target was ten point six seven yards on those nine targets. he had eight receptions for a total of one hundred and seventeen yards and two touchdowns with forty five of those one hundred and seventeen yards or forty one of those one hundred and seventeen yards coming after the catch that was a completion percentage of eighty seven point five percent with zero drops. Gerard Hurd was the guy who got the second most snaps at outside wide receiver. He played forty three snaps total. 38 of those with the first team, five with the second team. He was also heavily targeted, targeted eight times, but only caught one reception for 37 yards. Uh, That ball was a ball that traveled uh, 30 yards, though, because his total yards after catch was only seven. The average depth of target for Gerard Hurd, 20.13. His completion percentage was a pathetic 14% with one drop on the day. Dorian Leonard uh, played the next most snaps at the outside wide receiver position with 42 total, but he was mainly with the second team. Only two first-team snaps. He played 40 with the second team. He got nine targets on the day for four receptions and 68 yards. The average depth of his target was 14.33 yards, and his total yards after catch was 26. So that adds up to a 44% completion percentage. Two of those missed targets were drops. John Burt, next most, uh, 35 snaps. He played 22 first-team snaps and 13 second-team snaps. So kind of interesting. John Burt played the majority of his snaps with the first team in the scrimmage. He was targeted four times, and he only caught the football once for a 25% completion percentage. Uh, His total yardage was only four yards. Two of those yards were after catch. The average depth of target, though, 14.44. So right there in the same kind of range as a Dorian Leonard as far as the average depth of target, not quite up there with a Gerard Hurd at 20 yards, but a little bit above a Colin Johnson, who was used, to, you know, as more of a deep, as a deep threat at times, but sometimes as a possession receiver and on screens, and that really shows in his average depth of target at only 10.67. Uh, Lorenzo Joe was the next. He played 30 snaps, only three with the first team, but 27 with the second team. He was targeted once. He had one reception for seven total yards. Of course, that is a 100% completion rate with no drops. Well, Jordan Humphrey did a did a good bit with only 12 snaps. He played eight with the first team. He played four with the second team. He was targeted five times in 12 snaps he, for two receptions. That's, of course, a 40% completion rate. His total yards after catch of those four, 54 yards was 11, and his average depth of target was 17.8. So of all of the outside wide receivers, little Jordan Humphrey with the second highest average depth of target – behind Gerard Hurd, uh, but the big bugaboo with little Jordan Humphrey, every pass that he did not catch, he dropped. Every pass that he did not catch, touched his hands. He had three drops on the game. Unacceptable. At the slot-wide receiver position, the big, I mean, I, to me at least, one of the big surprises of the game, Reggie Hemphill-Maps, 33 first-team snaps, no snaps with the, with, with the second team. I, I didn't know that. And I've, I've, I've been present at every single practice, and I didn't know he was getting this much first-team run. It's something that I probably should have been aware of. Uh, on, the, on those seven targets, he had five receptions with his average depth of target being 15.28 yards. He only had nine yards total after catch on his 84 total yards, and, uh, uh, so that's a 55% completion percentage. Also with Reggie Hill maps. Another thing to keep in mind with these young wide receivers, these drops, golly, two drops for Reggie Hemphill maps. Three drops for little Jordan Humphrey. John Burt, only four targets, but still had two drops. Dorian Leonard, you know, two drops on nine targets. So uh, something to keep an eye on is all these drops, you know. And look, we don't chart these unless they hit them in the hands or, you know, somewhere on the hit their shoulder pads or helmet or something. Like, if they hit you in the hand, you've got to catch it. These are too many damn drops. Um, Armani Foreman. Next up, he played 30 snaps at the slot. He played 25 with the first team and five with the second team, but was not utilized heavily whatsoever. Had one target, one reception for nine yards. Uh, His depth of target was uh, three yards. His yards after catch was five, six yards. He had no drops. Number 16, uh, the other thing about Armani Foreman, we should mention that he got a handoff, which was something that we had actually heard at practice. He was in the backfield taking handoffs. And it's sometimes uh, it's kind of just interesting to keep an eye on. You know, Armani Foreman's a guy who who, who weighs probably you know over two hundred and ten pounds, and his brother can clearly play the position. Maybe you know I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a few handoffs this season, especially if uh, things continue to be such an injury ward disaster with the runners. Number sixteen, Davion Curtis had just as many snaps as Armani Foreman on the afternoon. Thirty snaps in total, zero being with the first team, all thirty being with the second team. He had two receptions on five targets for 30 total yards. His average depth of target was 11.8 yards. Uh, his total yards after catch was zero. Davion Curtis caught the football and was tackled every single time on a 40% complete completion rate. He did have two drops as well. So more drops out of the youngsters. Davion Curtis, the redshirt freshman. Finally, we have Devin Duvernay, who I could not believe after hearing how involved he was all springtime long, seeing it with my own two eyes in the portions available to the media, only 15 snaps, four of those first team and 11 of them second team. On those 15 snaps, he had four targets. His average depth of target was the second most of anybody on the entire team at 19.5 yards. He caught two of those footballs for 50 yards and a 50% completion percentage. His total yards after catch was 23, so he had more yards after catch than he did, uh, than he, than he did pre-catch, and he had one drop on the afternoon. The Deep Dig is brought to you by OrangeBloods.com. If you don't have a membership at OrangeBloods.com and this is the kind of content thing you like, all I have to say is you're absolutely crazy. OrangeBloods.com is the home of Texas Longhorn Sports on the internet, whether it's football, whether it's baseball, whether it's basketball. You can find all of it, the best news, the best breaking analysis, the best insight, the best recruiting coverage. You can find it all at orangebloods.com you get free trial membership right now at orangebloods.com by uh, going and signing up it's a free seven-day trial go inside the 40 acres engage with the orangebloods community you'll see why it's the biggest college team site in the whole entire world it's the biggest fan community of any team in any sport of any size in any league in the whole entire world and the reason is because of our amazing community go in there start a conversation see what everybody's talking about Go to Orange Bloods, find out what all the buzz is about. I guarantee you, once you join our community, you will be a member of our family for a lifetime. Get a seven-day trial membership now at OrangeBloods.com. Head inside the 40 Acres. And speaking of the Orange Bloods community, they have a ton of questions this week. As usual, some are very creepy, some are very, very hard to answer. And when my brain is already slushed to begin with, from being down in the basement all 55 hours of this week, Getting all of the work done for the deep dig, we now turn our attention to the OrangeBloods.com community's question and answer portion of the podcast. Alex Dunlap's work at OrangeBloods.com is brought to you by Wendy Swankowski DDS, the best in family and cosmetic dentistry for the Houston Memorial area. Please support this content by supporting our sponsors. Find out today why so many members of the OrangeBloods community are patients of Dr. Swankowski by calling her office at 281-293-9140 and scheduling an appointment or online at wendyswandds.com. That is Dr. Wendy Swankowski. If you are in need of Family and or Cosmetic Dentistry in the Houston Memorial area, please call her office, 281-293-9140. And let me say, I'm very happy to hear from Dr. Swankowski just this last week that she has had a new patient referral because of Orange Bloods. That's how you do it, guys. Thank you so much for uh, supporting our sponsors here, making me look good in the process. Let's get to the Orange Blood community question and answer portion of the podcast. And the first question this week comes from at, look at this name. He must have signed up early. His name is at UT Longhorn. He says, you work with catch. What's a play cousin? Have you ever had a play cousin or two? I don't even want to imagine his childhood. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know the background of the whole catch and play cousin scandal or what a play cousin is. I think that week I was at the Combine. I know they catch him something. There was something about he talked about play cousins, or maybe he used the term and y'all called him out for using a term like play cousins. I don't know what it is. So, if there's something, I didn't have time to look it up on Urban Dictionary. Um, so, if it's something real weird, you know, if I had to guess, I'd say it's like someone you grew up with who may not be family, but that you call a cousin. And that's been part of society for a long time. You call guys cuz or cousins. Like I, like, I had a best friend growing up and we call each other cousins because that's the sort of relationship that we had not the, like the closeness of like what i guess what I'm trying to say is we had the kind of relationship where you your fan, like you go in and you stay with them for like a week like you do with a cousin you get dropped off with your aunt and your uncle and your cousin you stay at their house while your parents go on vacation and then like they come and stay with you when their parents go on. like we had a relationship like that because like our dads were best friends and my dad was the godfather of like my I I called him a cousin I mean what do you call him it's like Oh, hey, Al, you go to the grocery store, like, you know, you go to, the, I don't know, the baseball card shop or something, you walk in the door, and the guy at the front, the guy at the front's like, oh, hey, Alex, who's, you, who's this? And you're like, this is my, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to tell a whole story? Be like, oh, yeah, like him Him and my dad are friends. We've been in the same cradle since we were uh, little kids. We're the exact same age. We've grown up together, stayed at each other's houses in the summertime. I don't know, like, this is my, I mean, what are, like a god brother? No, we just said, like, no, this is my cousin, you know, we'd, we'd visit each other. So, I mean, it, I just to me, it's like instead of having to go into a long story like that, or just, I think a lot of people probably have relationships like that where they're just kind of close to somebody. They feel like family. But they're not really family. You just kind of call them a cousin. So that's what I would say uh, a play cousin is. Have I ever had a play cousin or two? Yeah. So I, I, I've had that guy, uh, Max. God, 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 God rest his soul. He is now no longer with us. And then his brother and sister, who were named Libby and David, they were both my... Uh, I guess my cousins too cuz they were my dad's other godchildren on uh, from that guy. Okay, uh, next question. This comes from at Wapiti Horn. Why do dogs lick their butts? Do they know something we don't know? And anyone who's ever had doxins knows that this is a symptom of irritated anal glands. They have these anal sacs that are sort of inside their uh inside their butts that are uh, you know they're like it just Basically, the reason they have these sacks, and and they're different sizes and shapes, and they're done different anatomically because you know there's so many different breeds of dogs. But, like, dogs are all animals and they're meant to be out in nature, right? And so, this the scents from these they identify certain things about them if they're male, if they're female, they lend to a unique scent not only when dogs go up to smell each other's butts, but also when they leave stool. On the ground because, like the anal sacs, they normally empty out as stool comes out of the, out you know, out of the dog's anus. That's kind of what it. That's kind of what it does. So, lots of things can cause issues with them for this reason, because in all dogs, like loose stools over a prolonged period, they can cause a backup to that gland because nothing is causing that gland to, you know, nothing's causing that. The kind of anal canal to get uh, you know stretched out and make the, and force those glands to 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 drain. So when when that happens and they get too full, that's called getting impacted, and that can cause major discomfort. Uh, the placement of the sacks is more conducive to impaction in smaller breeds, and that's why I said you know I I I, I I've had dachshunds, so I know how this goes. Um, some breeds just seem like they're predisposed though, like Basset Hounds. Uh, I dated a, one, a girl one time with Beagles, a Beagle. Uh, you have to do it, and you know what you what you have to do is is you have to express the anal glands, and basically what that is, you just get down there and picture it like kind of like popping a popping a kind of a dog butt zit, full of vile smelling horrible pus, and uh, you know it's it usually like I said it's it's in smaller breeds of dogs. I mean, think about it. I'll bet when you picture a dog licking on his ass from your collective memory, just really going at his his own ass. Um, I'll bet the first image that kind of comes up in your head is a smaller breed. That's probably what, what, what you conjured up in your brain because generally with the bigger dogs, the, the, uh, the impacted anal glands are not an issue. They won't be smelling and kind of messing around with with their own butts as much as other dogs. Okay. This one, this is a really tough one I thought about for a long time. And then the answer just came to me. Uh, it's from horny at horniest emeritus in one word, what is standing between you and your biggest goal? And I thought about it, I thought about it, and I said, Horny Emeritus is finally the guy who stumped me. I'm like, what is it? Is it like, it, could it be fear? Could it be anxiety? Am I holding my own self back? Is it circumstance? Is it, you know, any of the number of things that anybody could blame, you know, what's standing between them and their biggest goal? And then I realized what the answer is. It's a simple one-word answer. Nothing. If you were faced with life in prison... Would you hang yourself? That comes from OrangeBlood user at Bodhisattva. And to me, this is un- unimaginable. It's an unimaginable scenario. I think if I was in solitary confinement, then I would probably want to die, I think. 23 hours a day in the hole. has <laughs> Never been any good for anybody's uh, soul. Never been any good for anybody's uh, psyche. I- <laughs> I mean, I'm a guy that I like to get like 20 minutes a day of natural sunlight. I get seasonal affective disorder and get a little bit down when it starts getting a little darker, a little earlier outside. I'm not sure about being in a dark hole 23 hours a day with, you know, some yeah, some guard like shoving gruel underneath my my uh, a tray of gruel underneath my door. But even, I mean, in that scenario, I'm not even sure I could pull the trigger on. Well, not <laughs> not pull the trigger. I'm not sure I could kill myself. It takes a lot of thought on how you pull that off with the limited. Like it's not a, it's it's a limited set of tools that are available to you while you're in solitary isolation. If I were just in jail for life, just regular old jail, like Oz, like 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 jail is exactly like we see on TV, right? But I don't think I'd kill myself, especially if I was innocent. And the fact is that I probably like. I'm a smart dude. I'd probably go in there and make some friends. I, you know, not with, I mean, probably with the prisoners, but also maybe with some of the people that worked there, maybe get a job with helping some of the other prisoners, try to figure out some way I could swindle 10, 15 years off this sentence by, um, you know, good behavior. I think if you are going to kill yourself in jail, the best way to kill yourself is suicide by attempted breakout. That's what I've decided. That's what I'm calling it. Suicide by attempted breakout. This way, you basically have two outcomes. Like, you you die, which is outcome one, and that's just what you wanted, right? Suicide. No having to hang yourself. No having to worry about whether or not they're going to find you sort of half dead and you're not quite hung, which you're going to be brain dead forever. Like, who knows? It's like, you, you just basically, you attempt to break out and you don't quit breaking out until you're dead. Or, and then the other scenario in the, in the, in the, uh, Suicide by attempted breakout scenario is that you manage to get some somehow get the hell out of there. You know what's the downside? So on one hand, you, you die, probably an easier death than you plan, because the cops is going to shoot you in the back of the head, and then it's a lot better than having to strangle yourself with some hand towel. <laughs> or, or on on the other hand, like it actually works and you don't die and you get out. Like I don't see why everybody's not just uh, you know all the suicides in jail should all be suicide by attempted breakout. If, if you have a friend in jail, feel free to pass that along. Okay, uh, this says, first, I would like an update on the latest rumors surrounding Deontay Foreman's draft status. And that comes from Gray Gordon, and he asks about this every week. <laughs> so I t- I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you, Gray Gordon, it's the same. I still think he'll go in the top 50 or so. And it seems like that top 50 prediction for me at this point might be getting a little bit bold based on what all the media analysts say. But, like, I keep telling all you guys, none of these analysts have any damn picks in this draft. I have trouble thinking he's going to fall past Washington in round two. Look who they have on their roster currently. Rob Kelly sucks. I don't even know how much longer Chris Thompson's on contract for. They tried to bring in the Keith Marshall last year. They obviously want a big guy with some speed. I think that Deontay completely fits the bill. And while the whole offensive line is not that great, they're certainly getting better. And that's an offense that then would have a ton of weapons. Kirk Cousins, Josh Doxon or Josh Doxon, Jordan Reed, you know, Terrell Pryor on the other side of Josh Doxon, Jamison Crowder emerging as one of the best, you know, receiving uh, slot receiving weapons in the entire league you know Kirk Cousins presidential just slinging the thing around I think adding a Deontay Foreman to there, running behind a Trent Williams the 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 silverback over there on the left side I think that would be a sick landing spot for him I mean he's been on visits to over a dozen teams so far I think he's been on 14 visits last week he went to see the Bucks. he also worked out privately with coach Belichick here in Austin Coach Belichick worked him out on receiving drills. Also, he's going he went back up to New England this week for a meeting there in Foxborough, which is interesting. I guess the Patriots think he might fall to pick 72. I'm not sure because that's the first place that they pick. I don't know if anything in any of the New England's Jets have cooled since they've now what are, what are the Patriots doing anyway, man? With the you know, first they signed Rex Burkhead in free agency, then they sign Mike Gillisley in free agency. They still have a deal on the table to uh, LeGarrette Blunt, they're bringing in all of these running backs from the college level to work out and, and, and have private meetings with. And they, they keep bringing in the Adrian Petersons of the world. So, Speaking of running backs, next question, Tony O'Carter. Do you think he flashed enough in the spring game, in the passing game, to be considered a viable third-down receiver out of the backfield? I think uh, considering um, the new Tom Herman offense. That comes from at M. Irvin. And I think yes, eventually sure. I think that Tony Carter was one of the guys that flashed the most of anybody in in the entire spring game. Like I said, and if I look at his yards after uh you know, we talked about his yards after contact earlier, but one thing I also charted was his was yards after catch, and I believe that his yards after catch was maybe more than his maybe his whole total yards receiving number because his average depth of target yeah, see, his, his depth of target on all of his receptions was his depth of target on one, two, three, four targets. He had a depth of target of two yards, then one of minus three, one of minus five, and one of minus three. So basically, these are all swing passes out there to Tony Carter. and his yards after catch was uh, four, seven, nine, and 24. So he's, he shows great yards after catch ability and even elusiveness in that part of his game. It's not even in the yards after contact. Like I keep saying, I think that Tony Carter is going to be a special one okay uh next question from McLovin327 why is there so much hate for LeBron James when you consider historically most top five to ten players were well liked during their playing career that's not to say those five ten NBA players weren't hated by their rivals just that they weren't as hated by neutral NBA fans as much okay and I'll tell you this McLovin wait you know as well as I do that we live in the age of social media where everybody's a professional critic. Everyone thinks their opinion should matter and it needs to be heard by everyone they want their opinion heard by, uh, you know, and, and they have this platform to do it and to actually like interject into people's lives and create and be trolls. And it's an absolute disaster. The microscopes on everyone. And there's a heaping giant herd of idiots like this mob and it's ready to swoop in and they, like they'll try and ruin your life. They like they, these, these, this is the internet. These trolls are real. Okay, it's a it, it's a it is a it is a group of people who are who are going to who are gonna don't don't slip up because they are going to be waiting and it just hasn't always been like that like if we had Twitter during the times of Michael Jordan I have a feeling that he'd be remembered a lot differently Jordan's teammates hated him not all of them. Some of them come out and say this Cog made me to say his teammates hated him. But look, that, that legend would not have started if there wasn't some truth to it. It could have been a hate that was just, a, you know, like blah, blah, blah. It was just the ultimate respect. It feels like a hate, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, they didn't. He, he's sort of an asshole. He, he, he tells people he wants $15,000 to take a photo with him. He punched Steve Kerr in the face. He called Muggsy Bogues to get, get the headphones back on the, the, the earplugs back in the kids. He called Muggsy Bogues a fucking midget quote unquote he uh, I mean, you heard the story about how he cheated with an old lady in a game of cards, and it 's supposed to be a joke about how, he, how competitive he is. but the fact of the matter is he was at one of his north carolina teammates' grandmother 's house. She goes to the bathroom, they come back in, and they find him cheating at cards like I, I just I think that had he lived in the age of social media, everybody would think that he was a dirtball too, and I think that LeBrain, he, he, or I think that lebron i think he I think that he basically signed his own ticket to kind of being the villain whenever he went to Miami and he t- he's taking his talents to South Beach. It was almost like a big WWE moment where he went from being a hero and a star, kind of a good guy that people like to root for, to being more of a villain character in the NBA. And that's something that has just stuck with him. And, pe- you know, people kind of think he's – at this point, they just kind of think he's a diva and a dirtball and a selfish player. And, I mean – some of those things can probably be said i mean they're probably true about his personality he's he's a he's a, he's a meddling personality within the organization he has a huge head he wants complete control over everything and he micromanages every single part of the process he i mean there're just certain parts of what lebron james does for as great as he is for the fact that he is likely to be considered whenever he whenever he retires the greatest of all time there are parts of his personality that aren't likable and those and the and the society that we live in right now makes everybody available to each other 100% of the time you get to see everybody's warts what is the worst genre of music and why that comes from at smoky 3 this is easy it's it's new nashville country and i call it kind of middle america teen girl bubblegum like hick pop <laughs> it's like hip pop. hip pop. it's horrible I- I've been in sessions with writers who make this crap they even think it's a joke they write these in like 30 minutes and when I tell stories about how publishing houses work and how little the music most people actually sing, then you know, what's actually written for them, a lot of times people don't believe me that their favorite stars, like all these country music stars, they don't write any of this stuff. This is written by dorks in a basement somewhere that laugh about how stupid these songs are. They, they sign them up under their publishing companies, and they, what they do is they have publishing dudes pitch to the labels these songs, and they're like, listen to this song. It's got the formula to it. And, and, and they do. They're written with a formula in mind. And so... What I'm, I guess where I'm going with it is that I think the music is made, it's completely fake. It doesn't come from anybody's soul. It doesn't come from anything that's real or anything that, um, you know, is born out of somebody's heart because of a true emotion. You know, even if it, you know, it doesn't have to come from struggle. You know, you don't have to be the struggling artist. I, I, I think that's bullshit when people act like that. But I do think that something has to come from an emotion that's actually born in, 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 a, in, in the human heart in the human psyche that's connected to the performer in some kind of way like that, and none of it is in, in Nashville. I think it's all hog, hogwash. And for all the hate for Luke Bryan that I see on, on, the, on the message boards at Orange Bloods, at least he's getting rich as can be, be being a crappy musician, and, but at least being a businessman who knows you don't have to be a good musician to write this crappy music. He keeps his own publishing money. He writes all his own songs, and he just cashes checks. He prints. Cha-ching. Okay, can coaches teach a heavy-footed offensive line to be quicker, a heavy-footed offensive lineman to be quicker on his feet? Are there offseason strength and conditioning drills to develop offensive line quickness? That comes from at Obla. And with the feet, man, like, there's some of it that's natural that can't be taught. You know It's like a reflex or a twitch or something, like great feet on an offensive tackle. Wickline line called it its own kind of finesse. There's some of it that just can't be taught. But if you get a big, strong kid that's got you know the big, strong kid that you think you can get his feet working well enough to just not be a, a, a huge slug, you know. I mean, those are the kinds of players that you know if they are big enough and they are strong enough and, and they can work at it, you know. I mean, th- those those are players that maybe can play at a high level at, at a at a right guard, you know, something, something like that. Certainly not a tackle. I think the drills you can do to just improve. The feet, um, there's the five points drill. It's like the dodge drill where you just get the five five cones, and you have the kid get an athletic. You basically get one in the middle, and then like a 90-degree angle out from that one, you get a uh, another cone, and then that's with your left hand, and you point with a 90-degree angle with your right hand, and, and you go five yards with that, and then you kind of point backwards at a 90-degree angle with your right hand, and you put that one there, and you point backwards at a 90-degree angle with your left hand, and you put that one there. And so there's four points sort of all around you, all at 90-degree angles from the, from the front and the back of your body. Okay? And what you do is you just go to those, and you get an athletic stance. You go to them, you touch them, and then you backpedal back to your spot. You kick back to your spot, next one, you know. Then once you get back, you kick back to the, uh, the one behind you and then, one, and then sprint forward to it get back to your athletic stance, kick back to the one back behind you and and get back to your spot. There's also the figure eight tennis ball drill. We just set up the cones and a tennis ball thing and you run around and at each circle at about like six o'clock, you put down a tennis ball to where the kid has to bend in. And, and as he's running around the cone, and sort of flex those ankles a little bit to bend and get down low enough to pick up that tennis ball or to set that tennis ball down in the right spot. That helps with ankle bend. It lends to more athletic feet and balance, even though it's not just complete footwork stuff. Uh, there's the four corners drill that everybody in high school has done. You just basically have the four cones set up, and you go from left to right, uh, right across the front of it with a, like a, say, like a karaoke, and then once you get to the cone, you do a backpedal back to the other cone, five yards behind it. Then from... Going from left to right, once, once you backpedal to the new cone, you'll do like a, a lateral, you know, a lateral kind of uh, you know, crossover drill, or just a lateral shuffle to the next cone, and then sprint back forward to the drill where you start it. And then probably the most important one would be the mirror drill, and you know, that's just a, that's just a quick feet, quick reaction drill, which is two linemen just up on one another, and one guy's just you know one guy's just got a mirror mirror the other get you know get your hands on him and you know the guy will kind of try spinning the guy will try moving from side to side he'll try an athletic array of moves to just kind of move laterally and you just got to move your feet mirror him get your hands on him some coaches even teach that you don't even get your hands on him you get your hands behind your back and you keep your chest on him Uh, this way you're always kind of mirrored up and you're always uh, kind of you know leveraged up to the side that he's asking for Basically, anything getting them moving laterally, side to side, backwards, and in all directions. You don't want to work on alignment's feet by like straightforward stuff. Like just, just, like just only working on his feet, like in the chutes or his feet and forwards and backwards bag drills, um, board drills, or even like on the ladder. The ladder drills, maybe you could, you know, like sometimes you can use the ladder to help them get their feet up off the ground if they're doing like the four corners drill. But just running straight forward, doing ladder drills, that's not going to help an offensive lineman with his feet. You, you, need, you need them moving laterally. You need them moving forwards. You need them moving backwards. It can't just be a straightforward thing with the feet. Finally, uh, this is the last question, and I want to say thanks again for everybody who asked questions. As always, I can't get to all of them. I'm sorry about it. Thank you guys for just filling up the thread. The thread this time was, you know, three pages long. It was really hard to pick out the questions to use. Another reminder: go to orangebloods.com, get a free trial membership. It's uh, it's 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 free for seven days. You will be a member for a lifetime once you give it a try. Also, please, guys. It means a lot to me if you can give this podcast a five-star rating, a good review on iTunes. Uh, Let me know. Let potential advertisers know that it's something that you dig. It's something that you like. When I can present that kind of information along with these growing listener numbers, it's something that's a lot more powerful for me in trying to attain money for advertising, which you know is what I am after in all of this is money. Okay, so uh, final one. This comes from her co-star at The Beaver Picture. You're on a first date with someone, and he, she orders the most expensive prime cut steak on the menu, and they request it well done. When it arrives, they put ketchup on it and proceed to eat it. What is the proper response? Easy, easy, easy money. For this one, there's only one response. You call the waiter over and you say, sir, the lady will take the check whenever you're ready because I am out of here.